Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor in London. It's Monday, the 5th of September. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, our guest is Dominic Hind, a writer and journalist specializing in the Nordic countries, as well as a lecturer in journalism and media at the University of Glasgow. Ahead of Sweden's general election on 11th September, he has spent the last three months traveling the length of the country. He joins me now from Malmo to discuss the rise of Sweden's far right, the surge in gang crime in the country, and how the electoral maths in the election could work out. Dominic, thank you for joining me. Hello, Megan. Nice to be here. So I think just to kind of lay this scene for our listeners, we have the general election on the 11th of September. What are the main issues that voters care about in this election? It's a good question because in some ways we've seen the continued trend of the last couple of years in Swedish politics where the big questions have been about migration, so migration, immigration, economic policy, but also about the future of public services in Sweden. And these things all exist in quite an intricate interplay. So the conversation about provision of public services, much like it's been in the UK actually around Brexit, has often been very heavily linked to the immigration debate and linked to the debate about the economy in Sweden and about how much Sweden can afford. So a lot of people think of Sweden as being a very different place. A lot of the questions are very familiar to people in other countries as well. And I think we've heard a lot about immigration being being a key issue, but also a surge in violence, gang crime and shooting deaths. Yeah. How has that kind of played out this year and especially this summer ahead of the election? It's been quite tangible. And I think that what you have to separate really here is the perception of the wave of gang violence and shootings that has taken place in the popular imagination in Sweden and the reality on the ground. 
these these crimes are for the most part limited to very specific areas of Sweden's three largest cities and some of its smaller ones as well. But for example, in, in Malmö, where I am now, going back 20, 30 years, there's been problems with gangs in some of the poorer areas. Same in Stockholm, same in Gothenburg. Now, those are long-standing problems. What we've seen in this election cycle is a shift in the perception to the point that people think that this is going on nationwide. And when you look at the stats, violent crime in Sweden is actually still relatively low. So even though there have been these spikes, Sweden is still a much, much safer country to be than many of its neighbours, than the US and the UK as well. But the perception of what these these little spikes and these little micro kind of ghettos, you could call them, um, mean is much more important to the political conversation than the reality of the crimes themselves. That's really interesting because I think especially being from outside the country, when those are the stories that seem to rise above and come out in international headlines. And apparently that's what seems like it's dominating some of the news in the country as well. To contrast that to, as you said, what the actual reality on the ground is, is really interesting to hear. I want to come back to that. But first, I wanted to ask about the current prime minister, Magdalena Andersson, who's only been in the role since November. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about the circumstances of how she became PM. Yeah, what happened in Sweden really over the last parliamentary term is quite astonishing. So traditionally, as your listeners will probably know, is that the Nordic countries tend to have coalition governments in some form. And the Social Democrats from the last full election four years ago had had a fairly weak government that consisted of them and the Green Party. And they were able to hold things together by horse trading between the different centrist parties and the left party as well. There were a series of, a series of shenanigans, basically, whereby the moderate party with this coming election on the horizon decided to start making mischief. And together with the far right, the Sweden Democrats started lodging a series of no confidence votes. Now, one of the things that essentially happened is that Stefan Levien, who was quite well liked in many ways, but not a hugely popular prime minister politically, had to, or resigned as leader, as prime minister and as leader of the Social Democrats. And a bit like we've been seeing with the Conservative Party in the UK at the moment, this wasn't a national vote. The new prime minister was always going to be chosen by the Social Democratic Party itself. And uh, Magdalena Andersson, who is a veteran of the Social Democrats and has held various positions in the government's previously in ministerial roles, she was the obvious frontrunner. And it was fairly much, much sealed and done deal that she would become prime minister. The problem was is that when she became prime minister, she immediately faced a no-confidence vote as a result of the budget. And for the last while, the Social Democrats have actually been governing using the budget that was agreed by the centre-right bloc. And that has severely constrained their ability to operate. So Magdalena Andersson, as long as she's been at the helm in Sweden, has been operating in a very toxic and very tense political environment. And so her priority in the next election is to try and secure enough of a workable majority that she can move on from those problems and really take the reins and put her own stamp on things as well. That's really interesting that how you frame it is that she's been really constrained because she is also remarkably popular at the moment, isn't Mm. she? She is. And I think it's because she's pragmatic and she has been running on what we'd almost say a presidential ticket. So she has been very, very visible in the campaign. A lot of it has been about her leadership skills. We've seen press conferences with with Schultz in Germany, with Joe Biden as well. We've seen her doing a bit of a diplomatic tour to show that she's a stateswoman. 
and it is working. I think that because she's a fresh, a fresh face as well, and voters will know who she is already. Having come in relatively recently, she's not got the baggage of having led the Levine government, and she's actually been very effective at playing the long game, which is why she's been able to cause so many problems for the Conservative bloc, because she's allowed them to dig themselves into a hole. If we go back six months, it'll look much more likely that Sweden will get a Conservative government with a far-right component. We'll see what happens on polling day. There's still a couple of percent in either way. But Magdalena Andersson has been very successful at building a consensus about across the kind of left middle that is anti-populist. And really, her message is that she wants the chance to get Sweden on track, deal with inflation, deal with the Ukraine situation, deal with the inequality that's growing. And voters will probably give her that opportunity. I guess if we can pause for a minute, we can just unpack the two blocks that mm. traditionally Sweden has had and what is likely to happen in this election. We can also come into, of course, the Sweden Democrats, not to be mistaken with the Social Democrats, which is Anderson's party, and their rise. And in the polls right now, they're polling second place, which is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. So if you could, I guess, just set the landscape of how these blocks work. Yeah. I don't want to bore everyone too much, but if we go way back to the 1930s, when the Social Democrats first get in power, they become the biggest party. They've only ever had a majority a couple of times in their um, existence in parliament. So they've always governed with the implicit support of either the left party or a formerly communist party, now a democratic socialist party, or one of the liberal parties, so either the Swedish liberal party or the centre party, which is more of a rural liberal party. Now, if we go back 10 years, Sweden had probably one of its strongest right-wing governments ever under what they call the alliance. And that was an alliance of right-wing parties that consisted of the moderate party, who are the conservative party in Sweden, they're somewhat confusingly named, the Christian Democrats, the centre and the liberals. And they were able to take power from the social democrats by creating a broad alliance of middle-class and upper-class voters, promising a platform of reform, new leadership, and really just doing a kind of new Labour-style makeover of Swedish conservatism. And for a while, they seemed unbeatable. And then suddenly that's all swung back the other way. What we've seen in the last while is a, a split in Swedish liberalism. So because these two liberal parties in the centre of Swedish politics are so important to forming governments, as is pretty much the case in all the Scandinavian countries, which way they go is very important. And the Liberals have chosen to throw their lot in with the right-wing bloc, and they've taken very hardline stances on immigration and all the rest of it. The Centre Party, despite being economically quite right-wing by Swedish standards, have now decided to go back to where they were in the middle of the 20th century and become a support party for the Social Democrats. And there's some evidence to suggest that their voters actually like that. So their vote's holding steady on about 8% at the moment. You've also got the Green Party, who have been in Swedish parliament for the best part of 30 years now, who are a small but very significant party. They were in the previous government. And then, as I mentioned, the Left Party, which is an old communist party that's morphed into a more modern, quite hip socialist left party. So these four liberal progressive parties are what are going to essentially lead to some kind of workable majority for Magdalena Andersson if the polls hold up. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. 
the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And I just want to talk specifically about the rise of the Sweden Democrats and their evolution as a party and the prospect that a lot of these traditional conservative center-right parties now are mm. seem to happy to work with them. Yeah. The thing about the Sweden Democrats that separates them from most other right populist parties is that they have very explicitly neo-Nazi roots. So if we go back to the mid-early 1990s, when some of the people who are now at the top of the party were students and were joining, they were still doing parades with flags, they were still wearing uniforms, still very clear connections between the Sweden Democrats at that point and the kind of extra-parliamentary radical right that was involved in street violence and things like this, and a very strong ethno-nationalist bent. Now, they have modernized themselves several times Every election cycle, they kick out a few of the worst offenders. They bring more people on board. And they have been very good at each election, making a bit of progress. They've, they got into parliament, broke the 4% barrier back in 2010. And then they jumped to the low teens and then the high teens. And now they're looking at going into the 20s and overtaking the moderates as 
the main voice of the right block. This is historically very significant because not only does it give them extra rights in terms of parliamentary organization, but it also, I think there's an important symbolic worth there to the fact that by becoming the main or the majority voice of the conservative block, it means that the other parties have to work around them rather than vice versa. Until now, all the conversations have been about them supporting a conservative government. And Ulf Kirstersson, the conservative leader, has worked on this assumption. And then the last week or so, we've had these polls that have shown big drops for the moderates, big gains for the Sweden Democrats. And the party's really on parity now, even if they're not going to, even if the Sweden Democrats aren't going to be larger, that isn't going to go away overnight. So the Sweden Democrats have been building for the past 10 years an infrastructure, building a voter base. And from their perspective, it actually suits them quite well if the Social Democrats win this election and stay in power because they can carry on pushing the buttons from opposition, they can carry on growing, and then next time around, they can go for 25-30%. I know you're talking about four years in the future, but Mm. just to look at this election, if something were to dramatically happen, and the polls, polls were incorrect, but the Sweden Democrats actually did take more than was expected. What is the prospect of them putting forward their leader as a prime minister? It would be very it would be very difficult, I think, for them to get approval from the Liberal Party to have a prime minister, the Liberals, despite their move to the right, are still very clear that they would do so on the condition of supporting a Conservative prime minister. However, if the Sweden Democrats were to have a big breakthrough and really take home those votes, then obviously there would be a case for them to put forward a candidate and they would have the right to do. What I think would happen then is that the Christian Democrats are already very close to the Sweden Democrats. The Christian Democrats are a middle-class evangelical-based party for the most part. Not very significant electorally, but culturally they're more and more influential. And there would be a debate, I think, about what do we do now? Who gets to form a government? Who is the natural prime ministerial candidate here? I think it would be very hard. Jimmy Orkerson, the, the leader of the Sweden Democrats, if he were to become a PM candidate, it would be very hard to govern with popular consensus. The ch- and I should emphasize to listeners, the chances of this happening are very slim. If we're playing with the what ifs, the Sweden Democrats are still a little bit too caught up with the baggage of the past and with their more extreme policies to be acceptable. When you look at Swedish prime ministers, um, historically, one of the really big talents they've had is actually reaching out to people over the borders of their own parties because they've had to do. And we see particularly at the moment is that Magdalene Andersson is positioning herself as, yes, the leader of the Social Democrats, but also somebody who fundamentally is going to be good for Sweden and cannot do that. He's far too much of a divisive figure at the moment to have that potential. But like I say, in four years time with more normalization, things could be different. And just for the prospect of Anderson staying in in power, staying on as prime minister, but this time with the centre as part of her coalition, what would that kind of mean for government? She's very wily. She knows that she needs the centre. So obviously the centre are going to get a lot of the attention. And she's been very careful. She came out last week and said, actually, I might not want to have the Greens in government again. And so her instinct at the moment seems to be to try and form a minority government with the centre and then to get the votes from the left and the Greens. Because on the left and the Greens are caught between a rock and a hard place here, as they always are. There's no other government they can support in good faith. Any other government combination would likely involve the Conservatives or the Sweden Democrats. So the Social Democrats, in the way that they have done so often for the past 50 years in Sweden, they have just pushed through their agenda and they're very good at doing this. They have the personnel, they have the leadership, they have the bureaucracy as well. And there was always an assumption that 
it's going to be them who's going to form the government unless someone else can put together a really good case. So I think that if we look at the direction of travel, we will end up with, a, by international standards, a broadly centre-left government, but it won't be a politically radical government by any means. Naturally, we've been focused a lot on the domestic politics and the domestic policies and issues. I think, though, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the direction that Sweden's foreign policy could take yeah. post-election. What, I mean, obviously, Anderson has been notable on the world stage, Her their, Sweden's application to join NATO, along with Finland, her standing up to Putin and standing behind Ukraine. If there were to be a different right-wing coalition in power, what would change in terms of foreign policy? So I think that you would obviously see the migration policy change, which is not foreign policy per se, but has a big effect mm -hmm. on Sweden's relationship with other countries. Because NATO's a done deal now, NATO's not going to be reversed. You would not see Sweden change its status from NATO. And historically, the right-wing parties have always been very pro-NATO anyway. With the exception of the Sweden Democrats, who until very recently were, I would describe them as Moscow curious. So this alliance of, you know, united Russia, uh, but also with the Orban model in Hungary and a few other places, their members and some of their senior office holders as well have been very vocal about their support for these kinds of, of movements, pro-business, ethnic nationalist, culturally nationalist. We see a lot of the same core messages emerging. Because of public opinion in Sweden, they had to very quickly pivot. So they basically cut all their public ties with those kinds of pro-Moscow movements. And they've now moved very much into the sort of Western European model mm -hmm. of anti-Russian nationalism, actually. A huge emphasis on keeping Sweden safe. Also, the kind of very jingoistic aspects are like, actually, we've got this great military, we can do stuff. One of the things which is very interesting is to see the death, the slow death of Swedish neutrality. So... We saw it already a little bit in the 1990s, but the NATO, the NATO decision really isn't there in the coffin for that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we might see with right-wing government is a slightly more robust international military engagement as well. Again, it depends very much on what happens. The mood at the moment seems to be that Sweden will take a kind of regional role within NATO. So it won't be expected to provide troops to other countries. It will very much be at the heart of the Baltic Nordic defense kind of frontier. And NATO are very happy to have Sweden because they've suddenly got an extra sort of thousand miles of NATO frontier up against Russia with very high-tech military capability as well. So it's a win-win for both countries in that sense. But I think that the thing that you'll really see if you get a right-wing government in Sweden is that there will be an attempt to develop a different kind of Swedish identity internationally and to move away from some of the old, more progressive tropes and adopt a very different atmosphere in terms of Sweden, how Sweden projects itself. And finally, you've spent the last three months travelling around the country. What kind of takeaways have you gotten from your journey? It's been really interesting. I think that the thing that really strikes me is that there is a huge amount of consensus amongst voters. So even if they're voting for different parties, everybody broadly agrees that Things like healthcare in Sweden have got worse. I said before, inequality is worsening. Inflation is hitting really hard. People at the bottom of society really struggling to pay the bills, struggling to buy food. There is a sense that Sweden needs something quite big to happen to it. There's a need for a kind of grand reform. The problem is that none of the political parties are offering anything like a kind of vision for reform. The And this is where some of the dissatisfaction comes from. If you look at the way that the left party are angling themselves, and also the way the Sweden Democrats are angling themselves from the right, they're actually, to some degree, speaking to some of the same frustrations, albeit with very different solutions. And 
it's up to the main power holders in Swedish politics now to actually prove to people that they have the ability and the understanding to, to deal with those problems. Sweden is not a massive country. It's got a little bit over 10 million people. But at the same time, it seems like a big country because it has these three big cities, but it's a very large geographically large country and it has a high cultural footprint. I think there is a kind of sense of what's Sweden for? What are we doing? We are, we, where we're used to being special, where we're used to being exceptional. Where are we now? And that is quite tangible when you talk to people. I don't think I've met anybody in the last couple of months who is really happy with the way the country is at the moment. Mm-hmm. We'll see how that reflects at the polls on the 11th. Dominic Hein, thank you so much for joining us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Thursday for our discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please leave us a review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.